Hi everybody and welcome to another edition of the We Are Mission podcast. I am Gerard from Missio Scotland and I'm delighted today to be joined by Father Bernard Fox, a Millhill missionary. Father, thanks for joining us. Lovely, a pleasure. So Father, for people who don't know about you, can you tell us a wee bit about your background? <laughs> okay, I was born in the Republic of Ireland right on the border between Fermanagh and Monaghan. So I was born on the Monaghan side. My parents are from the north of Ireland, Fermanagh and Tyrone. Um, what would you like to know? I grew up in Donegal mostly. Um, I went to a Protestant school for two years, had a very good experience. The family came to Scotland in 1958. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a long time in Duntoko where we settled because in September 61, I went to um, a minor seminary training Mill Hill missionaries in Lochwinnock, Renfrewshire. Um, so that was the beginning of my um, interest in Mill Hill. I don't think at the age of 12, um, when I went there, that I had absolutely decided. I had very vague ideas of, you know, uh, what a missionary was, but, um, but that was it. And then I started the ball rolling. So from there, I went to, um, to a place called Freshfield near Liverpool, where I did my A-levels. From there to Holland for two years to do philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then I took a, an interesting break. I went with VSO for two years to teach English. I was supposed to go to Papua New Guinea. And then about six months before I went, they changed their minds and they said, would you go, instead of helping people build houses, a housing project on a beach in Papua New Guinea, which really excited me, mm -hmm. they said, would you like to go and teach English in a French-speaking college in North Cameroon? So eventually, I went and it was a wonderful, absolutely wonderful experience. That was a really important experience in my decision to continue as a missionary, you know, oh, what right. I saw there. <coughs> so so in, in, in terms of, see if we just, if we dial it back <coughs> a wee bit, what was, um, what was growing up in, in rural Ireland like and did you find it a bit of a culture shock coming to Scotland? Uh, the language was a huge culture shock. I remember my mother sent me down to buy potatoes and carrots and a few other things and first shop I saw was the post office. So in Ireland, the post office also, it was a grocery shop. So I went in and uh, did my spiel and she says, potatoes, you said, we sell stamps here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to sort of ask her several times, you know, but <laughs> so it was, it was a bit of a culture shock. Yes. Yeah. But we managed, we managed. Duntoker is about uh, half Donegal to start with. Yeah. Place, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quite an Irish area, uh, hasn't it? It is. Yeah. In terms of um, when you were at school, what sort of subjects interested you? Geography, I think. Geography, history, very, very interesting. And then literature, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah, those were the... And I suppose I have to say religion. <laughs> yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, that's, well, that, and that's the thing. Did you, have a, did you have a notion of being a priest, even at a young age? I, it was more a missionary. Mm -hmm. Where I was, where I grew up in Donegal, I was very fortunate to meet um, a spiritan. They used to call them Holy Ghost Fathers at the time. A spiritan who was a distant relative of mine, distant, Father Ed Gorman, and he'd had a bad accident in Nigeria where he was working. And I always forgot. And it was one of the reasons why I thought I will learn French. Um, just a very quickly, the word for um, paraffin in French is pétrole, so it's spelled exactly like yeah. petrol without any. Um, the word for petrol is essence. So he had a, he had a boy, they call him boy, a servant, a helper, yeah. who came from Cameroon. 
whose English was very bad, he confused paraffin with petrol, put petrol into his fridge. It was one of these uh, petrol fridges, and the thing blew up, and so he, he messed up his two legs, so he really oh, had to come home. But he was a wonderful, cheerful guy who told lots of stories about the missions on the Adamawa Plateau in, uh, in Nigeria. And that kind of fired me, I think, from a you know, fairly young age. Fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> in terms of your family, did faith play a big part in your life? Were you from a kind of traditional Catholic family? I mean, you said you went to a Protestant school, so there might be uh, a no. story there. <laughs> <laughs> Very traditional. Um, my mother was the, the sort of, she pushed, no, in a nice way, religion. She, mm -hmm. uh, she wanted to be a nun herself. She was educated by the Louis nuns which was very unusual. She was the only person in her family to get a, a formal secondary education. Um, she didn't have the 1,500 dowry at the time, so she got married instead, encouraged by the Louis nuns. Mm -hmm. um, so um, there was a big influence there. Yeah. You know, big, it was very Catholic, yeah. We went to, I went to a Protestant school because this may sound very strange, but in that part of Donegal, place called Lahey, there was no Protestant church, so there was no Catholic church and there was no Catholic school. Right, okay. So the nearest school, two miles away, was uh, Tullynut. Right, okay, uh, okay. Church of Ireland school. So, and I had a really good experience. You were not strapped or belted there. Ah, Whereas okay. in the national school, I had two years in the national school, <laughs> and it was a disaster because we didn't learn Irish in the Protestant school. Yeah. And when I moved to the national school, so the, you know, where you've been, you've been using Irish, mm -hmm. Catholic school. Um, I think I was too shy to say, you know, I hadn't started learning Irish. Uh -huh. We were belted myself and my brother. So that wasn't a good experience. Jeez, oh. Yeah. <laughs> and you, so you mentioned the, the, the spirit and father there in, in terms of, would you say he was the kind of catalyst for you deciding to take up a vocation? Or was there other people involved? I think he was, he was the catalyst initially. I thought this is, you know, I'd never thought of that, but there was the stories really linked up and I thought travel and all the rest of it, all sorts of strange ideas, you know, when you're six, seven, eight, nine. Mm -hmm. um, but the other big influence when I, so I grew up in, in, in Donegal, near Donegal town, and there was a lovely family there called the Gildays. They moved to Scotland in 56, I think. Right. We moved to Scotland in 58. Two of the boys, Ronnie and Pat, went to Loch Winnock to start training as Mill Hill missionaries. So when I finished primary school in St. Mary's Dantoka and was seriously thinking of, it was more missionary than priesthood, you know. Um, when I started looking around, you know, and I met them during the holidays and they said, the football's great. You know, there's a few tyrants and there's a few other things that are not great, but the football is great, come. Um, that was one of the influences, um, probably the big influence, you know, because I knew the two of them. So I went to Loch Winnock. Um, in September 1961. And yeah. in, in terms of, you know, <clears throat> taking up a vocation, did you, was there any parts of it that you found surprising or anything that you maybe didn't expect? That I didn't expect? <clears throat> I don't know if it answers your question, but I suppose one of the things that still mystifies me, I can't remember how many was, I think there must have been about 30 something in my class. And there's only two of us that went on, continued. And I was kind of a bit surprised at that, you know, because um, I wasn't more intelligent than some of the other guys. Um, one of them went on to become a, a top lawyer in Canada and, you know, and there's others, you know. So I was a bit surprised that, you know, they all left and I stayed. 
or um, the ways of God or whatever. And just in terms of, so you've told us a wee bit about some of the influences there, right? When did you, when did, was there a kind of final moment where you said, I've discerned my vocation, this is what I want to do? My two years in Cameroon as a VSO English teacher were, I think, very important. Um, because you can decide, you know, we lad from Duntoka deciding to become a missionary, but you've never been on the missions. Um, you can have romantic ideas, reading magazines. Um, you couldn't say watching watching films at the time because we didn't really have much access to, to that. Um, just a, an aside on that one, when we were in Loch Winnock, I think it was the end of the first year, we were told by um, the person in charge of us that a missionary, a real live missionary, was going to come and show us um, films about his mission. And this lovely man in senior Ireland, who was English, turned up and he showed us slides and films of the Falkland Islands. We saw virtually no Christians. It was all about sheep and stamps. And that wasn't a wonderful experience because, uh, you know, I wasn't really interested in sheep. <laughs> so um, going to Cameroon as an English teacher, as a, in, in a French-speaking uh, environment, it meant I could move around and during the holidays and I got a, a first-hand look at what missionaries were doing. Um, and having been on the continent in the Netherlands in 1968, where everything was happening, you know, the barricades in Paris and all the rest of it. Um, I think I went with an open mind. I wasn't sure that I wanted to continue as a, um, a celibate male missionary. Um, and I also had some ideas about, you know, missionaries going to um, disturb people's culture and impose their own. And the people I met, they were mostly French and Canadian, they completely contradicted, you know, not, not so much in this field, but in what I saw. Um, one, one guy there, he'd been there for 17 years and he had not baptized anyone. He just stayed in the village, learnt the language, went to the fields with the people, got sick with them, eventually started a health center and then a school. And it was only after 17 years, one person said to him, why? Why don't, why don't you talk to us about, about your God, about what, what keeps you going? Why do you go into that room and do these things? You know, he was saying mass on his own. Um, but that really impressed me. It was a very respectful, sort of almost gentle way of offering, but wait till you're asked. <laughs> so that was, a, that was a really important experience. Yeah. Uh, just in, in terms of the actual term vocation, what, is it, what does it mean to you in a broader sense? Oh, I think it's um, it's probably at the core of what it means to be a Christian. You know, many of us were brought up to believe that being a Christian is about saving your soul and getting to heaven. And as I said this morning across the road, where I was saying Mass in Nazareth House, I said that can be a very selfish pursuit if it's just me getting to heaven on my own and to hell with everyone else. Um, the kind of image I used and it's useful for me is Jesus did not come to offer us an evacuation plan to escape from this bad world 
but he offers us a transformation, a plan for transformation. So for me, vocation is from our baptism, we are called. Yes, we want to get to heaven. But if we want to use that language, for me, we get to heaven as a byproduct of doing this other thing. And that is going out and being involved, you know, going out sent, powered by the spirit of the risen one um, to transform, to allow God to use us to transform societies. And that was very definitely my experience in Cameroon, you know. And just, you know, you mentioned that you obviously had a, a kind of powerful experience with a, a spirit and father. Why did you not choose a spirit? So what made you choose the Milhill mission? <laughs> I didn't know any spiritans in Scotland at the time, whereas I did know Ronnie and Pat Gilday, who are, it's a very, I think God uses ways like that. You know, that's the honest answer. I knew very little about Millhill. There weren't any Millhill missionaries that I knew at the time in mm -hmm. Donegal. Yeah. So it's a very sort of human thing, I think, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, that's that's yeah. the whole experience, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Is there, a, is there a saint or a scripture passage that defines or inspires your vocation? I had on my ordination card, I was ordained in 1976 in the snow in Dontoka. I had on that the call of Abraham, um, the God addressing Abraham and said, go, go, leave your country, leave your family and go to a country that I will show you. So that was important. Um, when I started studying theology, I did my theology in, in Holland and then at London University. Um, the big thing there was Exodus, the whole call of Moses, you know, go back. I, God appearing to Moses saying, I have heard the cries of my people who are suffering in Egypt. And then he says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And that sounds very, um, how would you say, very grand. But in actual fact, that was that was the core um, biblical text that keep not just me, but us as a group going, you know, in Cameroon. That's what we're. So it wasn't so much. Um, we did do a lot of development work, but um, that that was that that was what kept us going. You know, the whole Exodus thing, if you in posh language, the Exodus paradigm. It's a bit like liberation. Well, it's not a bit like it is liberation theology, and that was in the 1970s. When I went to Cameroon, that was um, it was very much what inspired us. In terms of a saint, I thought about that um, just when you said it there. I think the person, the saint that would inspire me most is Ignatius of Loyola. Um, so my theology was done by the Jesuits mostly. But even before that, I was always fascinated by Ignatius, who was very much a man of the world, and yet he had this experience. And his burning desire was to share his experience of God with other people because he felt that was liberating. So that would be... Fantastic. And that's yeah. all I lived in the, the Basque country for a whole year. So St. Ignatius' oh, shadow okay. is, is right. very, very vast in the Basque yeah. country. It's a very Catholic part of that uh, part of the world. Um, <clears throat> just in terms of, I think, people looking from the outside when someone chooses to be a, a religious sister or a priest, I think they think that it's very linear and very black and white. But having spoke to um, lots of priests and religious sisters, I know that that path isn't always straight. And I know that it's, it's filled with lots of kind of difficulties and challenges. And there's going to be times, um, 
before you become a priest, uh, while you're a priest, and, and things like that, that are, that are very difficult and very challenging, and you need to draw strength from somewhere. So, Father, where would you say that you draw strength from? Practically, if you're asking about now and looking back, um, Cameroon, um, on a very human level, we worked as a group and we were a very good group. So there were missionaries, there were lay missionaries mostly from France, so nurses and agriculturalists and all the rest of it. Um, there were several, not many sisters, there was a few religious sisters that came in um, later on. And then when I was at the university, I had a very good group were three Irish sisters, myself and an Irish priest eventually. And that, that, um, that bond that kept us together, you know, we challenged each other and all the rest of it. That was, on a human level, that was important. On a spiritual level, um, I've always drawn a lot of strength from um, called Lexio Divina. So taking a scripture passage, it's Ignatius again, mm. you know, and getting into it, immersing yourself in it, and just listening to God challenging you and encouraging you and um, so that was Lectio Divina was important. Um, in Cameroon, it was virtually impossible, but at the moment, a big influence for me would be, um, a big support would be spiritual direction. So I have a spiritual director that I see every six weeks or thereabouts, and that's, that's just somebody that sits with me as I talk, and we try to pinpoint where God is in my life, you know, the challenges, the... Um, where he's been in my life and where he is in my life, and, and that, that I find very, very helpful. Yeah. In, in, in terms of that, um, a lot of people would say that you've maybe got so much experience of the church both here and abroad that you should be the one giving it the spiritual direction. <laughs> so how, how does that, how important is, is spiritual direction for, for priests and, and religious sisters nowadays? I would think any, you know, from what I've seen in France, I've got a lot of friends in France and in Scotland and Ireland, I would think it's absolutely, it sounds a kind of strange word, essential. You know, priests are, are, are under so much pressure at the moment mm -hmm. um, and they're a diminishing uh, race, a diminishing species. And I don't think you can keep going. I could not keep going. Um, I was on our general council for five years as vicar general, and what kept me going there was my link with my spiritual director, directress, and a prayer life. You know, it, it keeps you, it calls you back again and again. What what is this about? You know, where is God in your life? Yeah. You know, and that means you know where is God using other people to speak to you? You know, um, where is He suggesting you reach out? It's it's. I think it's so easy to be fooled ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, by, I mean, prayer is important and, you know, doing going to mass and all the rest of it is important, but unless we sit down and, you know, allow God to sort of speak to us, mm -hmm. you know. Um, Do you think sometimes that we maybe, we live in our own wee faith echo chambers and sometimes <laughs> it's good to have somebody like that who can expand us a wee bit and, yeah. and, and develop us and things like that? Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it, it's certainly something you hear more and more about, I think, uh, these days than, than maybe in times past, and it's, it's understandable. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just spent two years recently at the Jesuit Centre in Glasgow, the Ignatian Spirituality Centre, training to be a spiritual director. Right. And it's, I, it's really, 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 I think, important as well that as a priest that you can offer 
where you can offer this to people who, who need it. Because more and more and more people I find, um, we have in this house here, we have a meditation group on Tuesday, and that's fine, it's a meditation. And then we discuss, you know, faith issues. But we've got a really interesting group on a Wednesday night, it's called a faith development group. And these are mostly retired people in their 60s, a few in their 70s, you know, and they're asking now questions that they really ought to have asked when they were in their 20s and 30s and 40s, you know, about the faith and about their own, not so much the, um, the okay, the theological, I can do that as well, but that's not, that's not what transforms, you know, but it's the spiritual, the spirituality of a person, you know, and how do you develop it? How do you help people move on from having ideas of God that they got when they were in primary seven, and now that they're 70, and they sometimes still have that same idea of God. So as someone up there spends his time noting down our misdemeanors <laughs> and then decides who can get in and who can't get in. Yeah. It ain't a Christian idea of God. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of, um, I think a lot of time our spirituality can get challenged by the world in which we live in. It's just more and more materialistic, less communicative, more isolationist and things like that. It's... I mean, I think if we just take, for example, some of the conflicts around the world, people sometimes seem to get intensely focused on them and then they forget about it. But it's still, it's still happening, you know. And mm. it's, um, mm. it's, it's very. I think it's more difficult nowadays to live with all the kind of um, media that you have. Um, it can actually make it a lot more difficult. Sometimes you need to shut that out and, and yes. create time for yourself. So yeah. spiritual direction, I think, is, is a, mm. a fantastic thing. Mm. Just getting back to your, <clears throat> let, let's look at your kind of vocation timeline. So tell us when you were at seminary, when you were ordained, and what happened after that, where you were sent. Okay, so I was ordained a priest in 76 in Dantoka in the snow. And um, in 77, I went to North Cameroon. Actually, to not the same place, but the same area. Ademawa is the size of Ireland. It's massive, huge, big. It's wild west. It was very undeveloped. There were no phones, no electricity. Um, where I was in, in the village, you know. Um, but that's where I started in 77. So it was what they call Bush Mission. You know, um, it was um, the first place I started. The Ademawa is a plateau, but the place I started had forest. So it meant, um, the big disadvantage of that was I got lots of malaria at the beginning, really bad malaria, and that was not nice. But it was a wonderful challenge, absolutely wonderful challenge. The people were lovely, they were absolutely lovely. Challenge to get to know them and for them to get to know me, but it was a, it was a really exciting time, you know. Uh, so that was, that was 1977. What was your um, vocational path like after that? Um, I think in terms of, I think it's a bit like getting married from my experience of people who have been married. Um, there's the honeymoon and mine lasted probably about two years. And then I got malaria a lot and I was just wondering you know, what was going on. And um, I suppose that the, the first group of people I was sent to, many of them had been baptized. And I was under the impression I was going to be working with people who had not heard of the gospel or anything else. So I, I was straining at the bit. So that was a bit difficult. Um, and then after three years, I was made director of the mission, we call it Parish Priest here, on the Adamawa Plateau, uh, a real bandit, bandit country on the border with Nigeria. 
that lots of people who had not heard um, anything about or very little about Christianity, and that um, I really flourished there. I think you know it was a, a great time. So, how long were you in, in Cameroon at all? Twenty-seven years. Twenty-seven so years. So, twenty-two. Sorry, two as a VSO English teacher and twenty-five as a Millwall missionary. Oh, wow. So, yeah. when so you're there from seventy-seven to two thousand and four. Two thousand and four. Yeah. With a small, I spent a year, I did two sabbaticals, and then I was a year and a half doing vocations work in Liverpool. Okay. Um, and, and in terms of, um, you, you spoke there about your, one of your kind of early impressions of going to Cameroon, where you thought you'd be there with people who weren't baptised and things like that, but how did they receive you? How were you received in Cameroon when you went there? The short answer is very, very, very well. There are very generous, welcoming, smiling people. So. It's difficult to answer the question because you have to say, you know, there's 250 something different languages and therefore different ethnic groups. Um, these are not dialects, these are proper languages in Cameroon. Population now might be 25 million, 26 million. Um, so every ethnic group has its own particularities. Um, a Scots person from the Isle of Lewis is not the same as someone from uh, Kent in England. You know, they're just different personalities. So the people I was sent with, sent to work with, um, to start off in 1977, they were called Tika, and they were lovely, very, very welcoming, very um, non-warlike people, because their neighbours had, they were much more warriors and harder. Um, no, they were extremely welcoming. Difficulty was, we didn't think in the same way, and so it was a, that was a struggle. There was lots of misunderstandings and. Um, yes, yeah, so if we look, if we look at that as well, then <coughs> you obviously had a wee bit of experience being there as a teacher, yes. first and foremost, before yeah. um, you were there as a priest. But <coughs> what was your overall kind of first impression of life and the missions in Cameroon? One of the things that, when I got to know the people a little bit, and it didn't take long before that happened, the Tika would smile continually. And I thought that's because they were happy, but it wasn't. It wasn't always because they were happy. You know, um, when Cameroon beat Argentina in that 1990 World Cup, you know, they smiled and there was a reason that they were happy. Um, fear, I think if, you know, if you, if you said what was the, the sort of constant that dominated everything that went on, whether it was development work or their own spiritual lives or life in the village between, you know, relations between each other, between other people, other tribes, it was fear. They were really, 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 fear was huge. Um, so fear of spirits, and there are spirits in the water, spirits in the forest, the spirits in the air, um, the spirits in food, fear of um, ancestors. So ancestors are your granny, your grandpa died. They're usually, for the tikka, they're usually buried in the front garden. And you would normally, when I arrived in 77, I couldn't understand this. People would go out in the morning and they'd put some food on the grave and then they'd pour palm wine over the grave because they believed that if you forgot the ancestors, they had to drink and eat. If you forgot them, your little son Johnny might fail his exams or your, your, your wife might have a miscarriage or 
So the ancestors, if you remember them, are very powerful. They're a little bit like our saints, you know, interceding with saints. But if you forget them, they can be quite nasty. And this just permeated, you know. So the thing is, you keep smiling at everyone so that you don't make any enemies. Because if you make an enemy, you may feel that they will use witchcraft against you. And that was, that was really, really big. But it took me a long time to work that out, you know, because they won't tell you. Nope. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, <coughs> right now, you mentioned them. Um, you mentioned uh, the World Cup there, <laughs> and obviously, there's. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you probably get stories attached to that because Cameron's the, the kind of football and prowess started to really bloom in the nineties, things like that. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm digressing a wee bit because I'm a football daft. But do you have any? <laughs> do you have any kind of standout memories or stories from your time on the missions of Cameron? <laughs> Where do you start? <laughs> I'll limit it to one or two because we don't have all day, I suppose. Um, so I arrived in 1977 and a wonderful parish priest um, who had taught me in Holland many years before, he taught me liturgy, um, Father Ben Bamster, and he hadn't had a holiday for nearly five years. So he took off after a month and left me in charge of this rather large Catholic mission of Ban Kim. And everything was going fine. And um, up the road, the village had, I don't know, maybe 3,000 people. There were fishers and they had some small coffee. They had little coffee plantations, um, which interestingly, they did not drink. They didn't drink coffee. They just grew it to, to sell it because the French forced them to plant coffee. But anyway, that's another story. Anyway, up at the other end of the village, there was um, a very nice Lutheran, Norwegian Lutheran mission. And they had a health center with a small maternity. So I'm, I've arrived there uh, one month. I came with a few books, and one of the books I brought was someone gave me as a going away present, where there is no doctor. So it's a translation from the Spanish. A wonderful book with lots of illustrations of what to do, when, and how. So the priest's wife, so she was the priest was a Lutheran priest, his wife, Elsa Marguerite came down, um, banged on my door at three o'clock in the morning and said, my husband has gone to evangelize on the other side of the river in Bam. I can't drive. There's a Muslim woman who really needs a cesarean. Could you take her to the hospital in Fumban? Now, Fumban was 100 kilometers away. The road was not tarred. There was none of it. The road was quite, let's say, bad. <laughs> so I said, Fine. So I got into the car, this lovely lady, and her husband was there as well. He was Muslim too. And we took off. And of course, what happens? About two hours into the journey, the baby decides to come. So I thought, I'm not a midwife. So I said to the husband, do, do you know anything? He says, we're not allowed to in our religion to even look at the birth. So there was me asking him to hold a torch at about four or five in the morning. Um, and I delivered twins, they both died. And I was absolutely devastated. What helped was when I got back, because when they died, I thought, let's go on to the hospital because the woman needs attention. Husband said, no, we go back. But first of all, I had a little spade at the back, so we dug a hole you know, beside the, the road and we buried the two children because it was the custom that they had to be buried um, you 
if they die during the night, they're buried during the night. So I was absolutely devastated. Anyway, when I got back, um, I was told that, that they were actually dead, probably dead in the womb before I left. But that just threw me completely. I thought, why didn't I learn something about, I'd learned something about mechanics, and I'd learned something about building before I came out, but nothing about delivering babies. So that was one experience that stayed with me. About two months later, I was asked to take another baby, but to a different direction. It was actually nearer, 60 kilometers away. And we delivered it in the car, and that one was okay. And uh, when, when, when uh, we got back, the woman said, can we have it baptized in three weeks' time? And I said, that's fine. What name would you like to give it? Bernard. <laughs> Bernard. <laughs> but that was, that was one really, uh, I mean, it kind of threw me a bit. I didn't go out to Cameroon to do this kind of work. Um, and, you know. So eventually, when I moved to the next mission, um, where there was a health center, um, I did a lot of traveling and taking sick people to hospital at night. Um, there were five African sisters. One of them was a midwife. Um, so I said, after we had a few more ex experiences of this, of babies deciding to come, I said, I'm, I'll drive, but I'm not carrying any more people. Sorry, I'm not going on my own anymore during the night. Then the sister said, hmm, we're not allowed to be on our own with a man in a car, certainly not at night, if we're over, if we're under 40. So I said, what? So we made a big song and dance about this. And we had the rule changed. So then I traveled with a midwife who was under 40. And she was a nun, a lovely person. So that was, um, that was rather better. Yeah. Father, you said you had a, another wee kind of memory or story. Could you share that with us? OK, this is more, I suppose, about a missionary or what people think missionaries do, or what I think missionaries should be doing, or should have been doing. Um, so I'm work, still working with the Tikar, um, eight kilometers away, five miles. There's a beautiful village called Bandam. And when I arrived there in 77, I am met one day by a very feisty lady called Agat, Agatha in English. And she says, I was baptized by the German. She was the first person to be baptized in her tribe. Didn't know much about her. But she was actually a wonderful character who had gone around, she was baptized in 1916 by the fleeing Germans who lost the First World War in Cameroon. And she went around, and when there was no missionaries for eight years, Agatha kept the little, she went around and she told the stories that she'd learned when she was being prepared for baptism of Jesus. And she started baptizing people. Not huge amounts, but this was, this was the Agatha. And she says, the next time you go to Bafusam, she handed me a fat envelope with 200,000 francs, not as much as it seems. 200,000 was probably about 200 pounds. And she says, I want you to buy me 80 sheets of aluminium because I'm going to roof my house. And I thought, great idea. There was about 2,000 people living in Bandam. All of the houses were covered with raffia palm, so palm leaves. It was great in the dry season. The difficulty with raffia palm, it needs to be, the roof has to be redone every four years, every five years. But more importantly, you can't catch water. So for seven months of the year when it rains, you can catch the water if you've got aluminium sheeting. You can't do it. 
Who carries the water? The women and the girls. The nearest water was the river Mbam, which was about three, four kilometers away. So, okay, so I thought, great idea. Maybe other people will follow you. So no sooner had I decided that when the night I was approached, I was visited by the chief with his entourage, and he, very typical Cameroonian, not Cameroonian, Tikar, he thanked me for coming and all the rest of it. He said, I'm a Muslim and you're a Catholic, you're very welcome here and all the rest of it. And we went on and he gave me a little lamb as a present, a live lamb. And I thought, this is the something, something here. You don't just, you know. Anyway, as he was going away, he said, oh, and by the way, and this is the reason he came, that lady who came to see you today, Agat, have nothing to do with her. She's bad news. She's always bringing new ideas into this village. We don't want to hear about them. And that aluminium, Father, if I were you, I'd just give her the money back. And I said, Monsieur le Chef, why? And he said, because les ancêtres vont se fâcher. The ancestors will get very angry if we depart from what they always did, and that was covering their houses with raffia palm. And I couldn't believe it, but I was a young priest. But I thought, hmm. And then other people came, even some of the Catholics, and said, maybe just wait a wee while and we'll see. Agatha heard about this. She turned up at night. Now, people didn't travel at night. You know, it was only 10 minutes walk, but you didn't. And she says, Est-ce que vous avez peur? Are you afraid? Jesus said that we shouldn't be afraid. Father, do you remember in the boat when they were going down and everyone, and Peter and all, they were all shouting and screaming and saying, we're going down, what are we going to do? Jesus said, why were you so afraid? Where was your faith? She said, are you afraid of the chief? Are you afraid of the ancestors? And I was, this is me being evangelized by this feisty, she was probably about 70 at the time. Anyway, long story short, I bought the aluminium. It came back. Nobody would touch the job. We had to get Banso people from another village to do it. But the chief had said, this is coming to the end of the story, the chief had said, on market day, and that was a Tuesday, les ancêtres vont parler. The ancestors will speak on before or on market day. And that meant, it was, a, it was a curse, that meant that something would happen to Agatha, her five daughters, or me, or maybe people around her, you know, nieces and nephews and all the rest of it. So it was quite specific. So I thought, oh my God. I went to St. Mass on Sunday, and normally there was about a thousand people would turn up in Van Damme maybe 200 Catholics, and then the rest, they came because they were interested in the dancing, the stories, the music, and also afterwards we had lots of social things. I arrived that particular Sunday, there was about 20 people. There was a madman in the front seat, and then about 10 altar servers, and Agatha and our five daughters. And that was it. I thought, what have I done? I have blown it. I've lost a parish. I've lost an entire parish at one fell swoop. Anyway, we let it go. Monday night, so market days on Tuesday, Agatha sends one of her daughters, Ghislaine, to my house and she says, Demain matin, à 6h30, mon père, vous serez là, à la maison de ma mère, nous allons faire la messe. Tomorrow at 6.30, you will be at our house, at my mother's house, 6.30, we're going to have a Thanksgiving mass because the roof is on. The work is finished. I thought, what's going on? 
So I turned up, and I was really scared at this time. Um, I turned up at Agatha's house, which was on the other side of the river, went up, and to my great surprise, there was about 200 people assembled outside. We said mass. We started saying mass on the veranda. And by the end of the mass, there was about 400. What I didn't know was that during the night, Agatha had sent her daughters out to the four corners of the village. And she says, if you come to mass in the morning, there will be meat and there will be beer, free, free beer and free meat. So mysteriously, 200 people braved their fear of the ancestors, turned up. We had a lovely mass. The ancestors said nothing. And that was it. Now, it was a real watershed moment in the village because people kept looking at her, looking at me, looking at people that were associated with her. Nothing happened. It was like a spell being broken. And what happened was in the months and years that followed, one family after another decided to follow Agatha and use the coffee money to buy aluminium sheets. And it was brilliant news for the girls. And the, 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 you know, for at least seven months of the year, they didn't have to trudge off every morning at five o'clock to carry water. So she was a trailblazer. <clears throat> but that was, and she said to me, you know, why were you afraid? Jesus said, don't be afraid. And it was, it had really sunk in. It wasn't just, you know, baptize me and, you know, something will happen. It was real, real for her, you know, the liberation thing. She was really liberated from that fear. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, just in, in terms of, well, 27 years in the missions is a long, long time, and you'll have a, an idea of what the, the qualities or characteristics are that a missionary must possess. So what do you think <laughs> those are? Ah. Oof. I think, um, you know, a big one would be adaptability. Um, you've really got to be adaptable. Um, in terms of outlook, it's really important, I think, for a missionary, you know, to go into an area like, say, North Cameroon, not with the idea that I'm bringing God to these people, but our image was always, you know, we sit down with them and together we listen to what God is saying to this community. Um, that's really important. It's helpful if you are, um, if you've got some skills as well. You know, if you know something, we bit about mechanics, we bit about delivering babies. Um, I'm serious about that because it just, just, you know, happens. Um, and I think probably most important is a real solid belief that you are not going because Bernard Fox wants to go as a missionary to Cameroon. You are going because you're sent. You're called and you're sent by the same Jesus who did the kind of things that missionaries are called to do today, you know, liberation. So I think that's the most important one, you know. Excellent. And <coughs> just <coughs> in terms of the, you know, you've, you've had many, many positive experiences for your time in the mission. What, what do you think are the, the positives about being a missionary? Positive, you have a wonderful chance that few people have, I think, to sit down in a, a culture that's totally different from your own and appreciate, you know, the riches of another culture, but also 
to hear what God is saying to that culture. One of the things that we didn't do it at the beginning, but we eventually got round to doing it, and that is our parishes were divided into small Christian communities, basic Christian communities. And on a Wednesday, in many places, we would gather in groups of eight to ten, you know, and they would read the gospel in the language of the people. We read the gospel of the coming Sunday, and then we would just, a little bit like Lexo Divina, we would have silence and we'd say, now what is God saying to us through that reading? Um, and then we'd pray, and then we'd come back on Friday and we'd read the gospel again, the same gospel. And this time, it would be, what is God asking us to do? What's our response to this particular you know, reading? Um, and that was very practical. I remember during Lent once, you know, they said there's an old Muslim woman who lives on her own and people think she's a witch, but her, her roof is falling in. And so the Christians in that little area, eight of them, they got together and they gave her a new roof during Lent. But as a result of reading, you know, the gospel. So it was, um, that was exciting. I found that really exciting, that way of being church. Um, yeah. And just in terms of <coughs> the impact that the, the Mill Hill missionaries had in, in the, the areas which you lived, what was that impact? What, was it was it just faith based? Was it could you see it in healthcare? Could you see it in education? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we I mean, it's not that we di we decided not to separate the two. You couldn't separate. Um, you know, I'll give you a very concrete example. So I arrived in Ban Kim in seventy seven, as I said before. Um, in 1977, in the Tikar Plain, the Tukran, I don't know, maybe 12,000 people, the infant mortality rate was very, very high. So two children out of five did not make it to 24 months. I got that from the, the Lutheran Health Center, and they'd been working for years before us. So two out of five kids. So I was baptizing. We didn't, we didn't baptize many babies. Because sometimes it was first generation, and you, you know, you, you couldn't. You needed someone to help them to adhere to the Christian faith. But I was baptizing babies today, and then a month later, the parents were coming back and saying, "It's dead. Will you help us to bury it?" Now, it didn't make much sense. Part of the reason, the main reason for it was. Now, this is a this is a bit delicate. Nestle, in the 1970s, had waged a massive advertising campaign all over West Africa. And they were trying to persuade women, African women, that their Nestle milk, so I think we had a thing called Cowingate, you're too young to remember that, but Cowingate, um, it was a, a powdered milk, but the advertising was trying to convince African women that powdered milk was better than breast milk. And because it came from Europe, a lot of Africans believed it. The difficulty was the river in Bam was quite polluted. So they were mixing. There was nothing wrong with the powdered milk, but they were mixing this with contaminated water. That was causing diarrhea and other, and the babies were dying. You know? So we, you, there was no way. So then we started a big campaign to try and help people dig wells. There weren't many wells around the Tikar Plain because people were afraid of they thought if you dug into the ground, you're upsetting the female spirit in the earth. And there was a specific female spirit. And so they said God made a river 
but it was five kilometers away for us to take water. And so it took us a long, 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 long time to do it, to get them to dig wells. So I, I worked for over 10 years trying to help people dig wells. Um, we opened a, there were already two schools there, but we opened a big health center in Mayodali when I moved to my next mission. So it was my whole time there. And that's why we had lay volunteers from France and Canada who worked with us, you know, as nurses and teachers. And so I had to go together, you know. Absolutely. <clears throat> Just in terms of, uh, we spoke about the term vocation, the term mission, what does the term mission mean to you? Mission. Ite misa est. <laughs> it's linked to the word, in the old days, the priest used to say, go, the mass is ended. Now go and do it. Do what you've celebrated. Proclaim it. Be bearers of joy, good news. So it's, 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 for me, mission has got this, it's about, and our present Pope Francis is very strong on it. He says, mission is an activity that's not just done by professional missionaries. Every baptized person is called and he's sent out. And it's, for, for many people, it's the way we live. Um, for missionaries, it's, it can be much more um, specific. You know, in, when people asked, when the question comes up, then you offer the gospel, you offer the good news. So it's, it's got that, that element in it. But it's definitely going out. We're not just there to save our own souls. And, and the, you touched on something there about, um, I mean, you've mentioned it during the course of our conversation in terms of lay missionaries. Just how important are, are lay missionaries and what's the best way that a lay missionary can live out their mission? Do you mean abroad or at home or? Anywhere. Really, okay. I, I mean, you've obviously had the experience <clears throat> of the uh, missionaries both abroad and here. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what do you think is the best way that we, we can live out our, our mission? Yeah. Well, just to, you know, to clear up the, the, the thing, there will be very few opportunities now in, say, a country, a place like Africa for lay missionaries because in the past we didn't have nurses and teachers. They're now most African countries, most, not all, most African countries still have, today, they have enough people of themselves, you know, their own nurses and teachers and things. There are still places that, um, even in Cameroon, where people don't want to go, where there still might be a limited amount. But in terms of, you know, lay missionaries, here, I think the main way we can do it, we, we, we live in, in Scotland, for example, I think we are still very much influenced by the Reformation, um, the Protestant Reformation. And one of the things, there was a lot of good things that happened at the Reformation. It gave us a taste for the word of God. I think that's where you have to thank, you know, people like Luther and Calvin for that. Um, but for me, um, one of the negative effects of the Reformation is it privatized religion. It really privatized it. So if I have a Bible and I can read it, it can be me, the Bible, and God. I don't need, an, I don't need church. It's good if we come, but I don't need it. Yeah. I don't need to come to church. As long as I've got a Bible, you know, and I'm trying to, it's me, the Bible, and God. Um, and I think, I think uh, as a result of that, that privatization of religion, we don't talk. Like in Scotland, you very rarely on buses and things like that, you talk about religion, you think he's a, he's a, you know, a fanatic. Yeah. Whereas in Cameroon, 
everybody talks everybody talks about God about religion you're traveling all over the place you can see it mm. you know um, whether it's pouring palm beer over you know certain trees and things like that but that's God it's, it's, it's we're thanking him for creation we're thanking him for being with us well so I think there's a huge need to say with, with if you want to call them lay people baptized people um, to first of all live it and not be afraid to say, you know, when someone asks you, why are you doing that? Because I'm a Christian. Because that's what Christians do. And then maybe if the opportunity arises, you know, you're not distributing tracts maybe in Circuit Hall Street, but if the opportunity arises to explain, you know, Paul says to Timothy, he said, you must give a reason for the faith that is in you. Explain why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and I think synodality and the whole push now, you know, evangelization, in this country, I think that's it. That's really it. Since um, the, the 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 present Pope Francis, he keeps saying, you know, we are all missionary disciples. We've all got to somehow find a way of passing on the joy of the gospel. Um, for me, I see a lot of grandparents here, and they do it sometimes wonderfully well. How they pass that on in their own way to their grandchildren. It's more difficult with parents today. But they have to, I think they have to find ways of intelligently presenting the Christian faith as a real answer to real problems. You know, that was our, our kind of mantra in Cameroon, what we're offering in the gospel. It's got to be a real answer, you know, to real problems. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, in, in terms of the, maybe we've got far too much of a kind of, Western outlook, maybe we can learn lots of lessons from mm. uh, Africa and Asia and, and other parts of the world where faith is um, st still on the rise, still very strong. Not saying it's not strong, obviously, in, in various parts of Europe and stuff like that, but maybe, maybe less so these days. And that, mm. that kind of brings us on to the next question in terms of the, the situation for the, the Millhill missionaries worldwide. What's, what does it look like and where are you getting most of your vocations and things like that from? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're much smaller now than we were. You know, I think there was one point in the 60s we were probably over 1,400, no, 1,200, 1,200. We're down to about 200 now. Um, most of our vocations are now coming from West Africa, so Cameroon producing a lot, and then East Africa, Kenya, and Uganda. And then recently, quite a few have come from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So that's, that's Africa. East they're coming from India, really quite quite substantial numbers from India, and then the last um, a place that we never thought we would actually see any missionaries from uh, Malaysia. We were thrown out of Malaysia by the government of the time. Um, I can't remember the date, but it was the eighties, um, and the idea of the government was that the church would collapse, no priests, because there weren't there were very very few native priests at the time. It didn't. It went very charismatic and it survived. And then eventually they, they produced, they're producing their own priests. Not only are they producing their own priests for, um, you know, in a place called Sarawak. I'm sorry, um, yeah. But they are now, we've had, the, we've had now two priests from there ordained as male missionaries. So that's a real interesting story, you know. So it's Africa and it's, um, it's Asia that are providing the bulk of um, our new recruits. 
we've got our, part of our problem, if you want, is we have there's too many coming forward. We can't take, you know, because of finances, because it, to train a, a missionary and then once he's trained, to keep him, you know, active in the field, it demands a lot of that, and we haven't got unlimited amounts of cash. So that's a big restraint at the moment. And just in terms of how, how the Millhill missionaries operate, obviously, like in, in the past, we've had Millhill missionaries from here that have went and worked in, in Africa and Asia and things like that. In the future, is there scope for a Millhill missionary, say, who's been ordained in Cameroon to, to come and live and work in Scotland? Is that how it operates? Or is well, that's a really interesting question because <laughs> at the moment we have um, eight or nine uh missionaries out from outside this country yeah. who are actually working, not in Scotland, we've no one in Scotland yet, but we've got some now in Sunderland. Uh -huh. So there's two Cameroonians in Sunderland who's, who are working with a Welsh priest. Jeez. <laughs> and they're, they're working in St Mary's Sunderland and it's a wonderful multi-ethnic, I went down there for a Sunday yeah. and it was a joy to go to Mass because they sang and they danced and they were happy people. <laughs> um, same thing in Maidenhead, we've got some Kenyans, yeah. um, Kenyans and a Cameroonian, no, a Kenyan, no, two Kenyans, two Kenyans in Maidenhead. So we're, it's, it's, it's beginning, the, we're moving in the, in the opposite direction now. So I, I would think in the future, it'd be very, very likely that we would um, invite, um, there, would, there would be a proviso, um, Gerard, a big proviso, it would not be coming, bringing people in here to fill gaps Okay. You know, so a parish where there's no more priests, we wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. But if there was a specific area, um, say like Sunderland, uh -huh. you know, where there's lots and lots and lots of Africans, Asians and everything else um, at the university, uh -huh. but also just living there. So that is a missionary situation, you know. Yeah. So, just, but we, we, in terms of, you know, Scotland's much more diverse than, than it used to be even... 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Do you think a similar situation could exist in Scotland like that? You know, a lot of African students at university here are coming over here. It could be to escape the situation in their own yes. countries and things like that. Yeah. Do you think that could exist here? Yes. I think it already exists, you know. Um, when I was here, I was here first from 2004 to 2010 in this in, in, in Scotland. And there was, um, they've, they've knocked down the, 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 the flats now, but there were high-rise flats over here. And once a month, I did mass in French. And we would get 30, 40 people at every, every month. And they were refugees from lots of them from Democratic Republic of Congo because of the French. But that was a wonderful experience. Um, now, most of them had been baptized. But it was still a question of deepening their faith and also trying to get me to encourage them to be missionaries to each other. Yeah. Because what happens is, and this is, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on camera, but what happens is, people who will come from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, they have a different experience of liturgy. So for them, going to mass is not going and sitting in a bench and occasionally standing up and sitting down and kneeling. And it's moving their bodies. It's dancing. It's praying with your hands open. It's using your body to pray. And what, what actually has been happening since, you know, um, since we've, We've seen the arrival of large numbers of people from places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, is they arrive here Catholics, 
but very, very quickly they don't go back. But they are joining the Pentecostal groups because there you can pray, as they say, correctement, properly. Right, okay. Okay. In other words, you move your body and you don't have a problem. Um, one woman came to me and she says, I went to a priest, I won't say the, the place, and I explained that I have her bad spirits in my house. And for her, that was a real problem. And she said they're in the bed and they're in our bedroom and all the rest of it. And the priest said, don't be, don't be stupid. There are no such things as bad spirits. Now, that's, that doesn't help. You know, it's just an, an don't blame the priest because he doesn't understand the background. But I think there's a huge um, opening there for, you know, and it can be, it could possibly be a Congolese priest that we've got Congolese priests in our organization now, but who would be working with, you know, their own people. So the answer is probably yes. <laughs> so, Father, obviously, um, Millhill and, and, and the Pontifical Mission Societies, you know, they're, they're closely linked in terms of the things that they do and, and the people that they help and support. Well, why do you think it's important um, for people to support the work of Missio Scotland and the wider Pontifical Mission Societies? I would say it's not just important, it's absolutely vital. Um, as I understand it, one of the things that you do is to support local churches, local communities. Um, very often, in, in, in places in Africa, for example, that's what I know best, Cameroon, you can have local priests and sisters, but they just don't have the means to either expand or keep going, you know, the communities that they're working with to keep them going. So I think it's really, really important. And if I could single out one group, I'm sure you help, and that's catechists. Like when I was in North Cameroon, there were places where, there was one place I went to mass, I could only go twice a year. It was so remote and the road was so bad, but the communities there are kept going by catechists. We were paying them nothing. You know, we couldn't pay them anything. Um, but, you know, to get them a motorbike so that they can actually travel around to, to, to do what a catechist does. Or a catechist, he, he teaches religion, but he also gathers the people for prayer. He keeps them together. So I think it's absolutely vital that we, we support because we're all one family. We're all in this together. You know, we're all, all one family. So I would um, really think it's absolutely vital that we share what we have with our brothers and sisters who belong to the same family. Father, we're coming towards the end of this podcast, so you'll be you would like to hear that. But um, before we go, I usually ask uh, just a wee kind of fun question to end on. Can you tell um, our audience something about you that they might not know? <laughs> Do you have any special skills, hidden talents, anything like that? Wow, I have to think about that. Um, okay, one of the things I discovered when I was, this was a discovery, when I was um involved in the well project helping people to dig wells i discovered i can actually divine for water and that was a real big surprise i didn't believe it there was a, a professional diviner who came to help me and he said he gave me these little um eight millimeter iron rods and he said and he bent he bent them quite simply and he said just take those now follow me and i watched him and when we hit a water vein on the road on, on the ground, the thing starts moving like that. He threw his away and he said, now you do it. And I was, I, I said, I can't do it. I, I'm not a diviner. So I went around and I got to this place and they, they were just moving and I was desperately trying to 
not make them move, and the things moved and they started moving. And we dug and we found water. So that was the surprise. I, I can, I'm not good at telling you the depth, you know, at what depth you'll find it, but I can divine for water. So that was a big discovery for me. There you go, you can call yourself the divine diviner. Father <laughs> 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 Bernard, thanks very much for giving us Great. so much of your time and thanks for sharing your experience. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Missio Scotland is a Scottish branch of the Pontifical Mission Societies, the Pope's official charity for overseas mission. To learn more about the work of Missio Scotland, you can visit our website www.missioscotland.com You can like us on Facebook www.facebook.com slash missioscotland You can also follow us on Twitter missio underscore scotland and on Instagram missio scotland If you would like to donate to Missio Scotland visit www.missioscotland.com slash donate You can also call us on 01236 449 774 or send donations to Missio Scotland, 4 Laird Street, Coatbridge, ML5 3LJ. Please keep us in your prayers. Thank you and God bless.